Today's teaching text comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had a moment in your life that changed everything? That from that point on, you know, life was different than before that moment. I want you to take a few minutes and just really consider that. Think about you know, your life. Try to put your finger on uh, a memory where, where that would be true. This was a moment that changed everything. One of my uh, yeah, favorite experiences of pandemic so far has been going back through some of my favorite movies with my older boys. And uh, last night I showed them the movie Arrival. Uh, which I think should have won the Academy Award for Best Movie About Aliens in 2016. Uh, They haven't put that in as a category yet, but they should. And Arrival is fascinating on tons of levels. I commend it to you if you're looking for something to watch. But uh, there's this moment where all these alien ships show up at 12 different places across across the Earth. And it's one of those moments where everything changes. And and you learn throughout the the movie on how many levels everything changes because of this. And I was asking, you know, my, my oldest, who's 14, you know, have you had any moments in your life where from that point forward, everything changed? And he thought for a minute or two and was like, no, I don't think I have. And I think that's probably true. I think of my, my younger life. I don't know that before I was 15, I would have necessarily um, been able to identify, yes, this thing is going to alter my life forever. But looking back, I definitely know some of those things ha- had, had altered you know, my entire life. I just didn't have necessarily perspective at that age to, to consider how much, how much this change was going to ripple across the years of my life. So, have you had a moment in your life where everything changed? And to me, that honestly feels a bit like it's a question that has application, you know, 
widely in our world, but it's a question you kind of expect to hear in a church environment. Like, this is what we're about. We're about those life-changing moments. We're about those epiphanies. Uh, we're about those times where, you know, there's a breakthrough that, that shifts, you know, reality in someone's, in, in someone's life. And, and to me, even reading a story like we just heard with Isaiah, uh, and and the you know the profound transformation that takes place there, I think about how do I think about life changing moments in a week where almost every day feels the same, right? We just went through uh, Groundhog Day, and every day in pandemic uh, runs the risk of feeling like Groundhog Day. Like uh, the, you know, each of these days feels very similar, and, and maybe it even begins to shade how I look at other life changing moments in my life. I, I just I don't know how you think about them, but whether they're intersections or or thin spaces or epiphany, right? Epiphany is a good word for for this type of experience. But you know, you're at a crossroads moment, and you choose this road instead of this road, and and you're, the entire direction of your life is is changed from that. I like the the um, you know theologians and and the mystics talk about thin spaces, those times in our life where you know the distance between us and God felt like it was was removed or it was very thin. All of a sudden, we're sensing God's nearness, God's presence in a profound way. I think about the thin space moments of my life and how how meaningful they are to me now and how even sometimes I'm longing for those thin space moments in, in a given day that may feel very ordinary. Epiphany, a realization of transformation, a realization of uh, of something that, that alters everything, right? So there are these places where we choose one road over another, a place where we sense God was near, a realization that shaped our understanding. Maybe it's an encounter with love that melts our heart. And sometimes it's not till we look back that we realize that's what it was. Um, sometimes we may have some sense of the significance, but I find once you string a bunch of days together that look the same, I, I, I feel sometimes like the, the significance drains out and I, and I, and I want to get back to those moments. But what are the times in your life that have reframed what was possible that you would have said this changed everything? We're, we're looking at these people in, in the Gospels and in the Hebrew Scriptures who have encounters with God um, and even just the few that we've looked at have so varied in their scope, in the details around them. We had in the beginning these ancient magi who were searching the skies for astrological phenomenon. They travel, you know, halfway across the world and they meet this baby in the middle of this political turmoil. Then we have this, this shepherd who basically thinks his life has passed him by, who's walking, uh, you know, around, who's 40 years old, isn't imagining necessarily any big changes are going to come. And he encounters God through a burning bush. Then we have this invisible God and this woman who is crying out in agonizing prayer because of the disappointment of her life, longing to have a child, not able to have a child. She's praying so fervently that a priest sees her and thinks that she's drunk in the presence of God, pouring out, venting her heart in disappointment. Last week, we had this uh, prophet in a cave who experiences a fire and an earthquake and a massive wind, and yet God wasn't in any of those extreme signs. He came to Elijah in a gentle whisper, and Elijah covers his face at the holiness of God. All the variety of these experiences of, of God revealing himself to these people. And that's why I think it's important to have a series like this as opposed to just one example, right? Sometimes you can hear one person's testimony of encountering God and it's so different from your experience that it causes you to kind of dismiss the possibility of that happening in your life. 
But our story here today in Isaiah 6 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees the Lord, what, where? On a throne. In the year that the king dies, the royal prophet sees God depicted on a throne. Right, And we need to know just the very tiniest bit of, of context here is this is beginning an era of massive decline in Judah's story. Uh, the Assyrians have risen up in power. King Uzziah was a good king in lots of ways. He was wise. He feared the Lord, but his life had a tragic end. And 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 the rulers who come after him are, are nothing like the best of, of Uzziah. And it's sort of like the, the, the very, like the death knell on the golden age of, of Israel's kings. And so Isaiah is one of the prophets who spans the pre-exilic and the exilic period in Israel's history. And we're going to see, right, from Isaiah 1 to, you know, to 5, and then this new commissioning that takes place in Isaiah 6. This is a transformation in his memory, in, in his ministry. This is, this is one of those moments where from this point forward, everything changes. And the context of this moment is in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord on the throne, not on a burning bush, not in a gentle whisper, and not meeting me in the agony of my prayers, not searching the skies for signs and coming and finding a baby. Isaiah receives a picture of God that is exactly what he needs in this specific moment. God reveals himself to us in ways that we can grasp. And not, uh, and that's not to say in a way that represents all there is. Like if you were going to say, what does it look like when God shows up in, in someone's life and all these stories, and we could add all of our life stories to this, and we're still only getting a fragment of what's actually there, right? I go back to Moses' story quite a bit, right? You have the burning bush. So God shows up, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. You, you know, he, uh, the, the God introduces himself. He says, I care so much about freedom and justice for my people that I'm sending you to set them free. All the experiences of the, of the plagues leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, all the miracles of provision in the wilderness. He finally gets to Sinai. If anyone knows what this God I am is like, what this God Yahweh is like, it's going to be Moses. Then he asks to see God. And God's like, shoulder blade. That's what you get. After all of that, he gets to see the shoulder blade of God. And yet it says later that Moses met with God in the tent of the meeting and he spoke to God like one speaks with a friend face to face. What is happening? Did God show him his shoulder blade? Was God a burning bush? Did God speak to him face to face? Yes. Well, how? How? Honestly, I don't know all, all, all the exact answers, but we have the, the, the holy presence of God represented in a fire. We have the God who shakes the mountain and shows the shoulder blade. And then maybe we have a pre-incarnate uh, expression of, of Jesus, or sometimes it's seen as the angel of the Lord showing up and speaking with Moses in a way that he could actually take in and have a conversational relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this God certainly is several levels, you know, maybe infinite levels up the scale of being than we are. And so it is hard for us to get our just human limited rational minds around the experience of encountering this God in a real way, especially in a pandemic when we're stuck in our houses over and over again for day after day that looks very much the same. I do want to say though, how you conceive of God is perhaps the most important thing about your life. In preacher confession, Of course, most of the time, it may not feel that way. 
It's not going to be like how you conceive of God is going to come across on a daily basis as the most urgent need of your schedule. But how you conceive of God, how you imagine God, how, how you, uh, you know, c- consider the reality of God is going to shape in some real ways the possibility and capacity of your life. It's going to shape the tone and quality of your life. It's going to shape the, the hope and direction of your life in significant ways. It will, it will shape on some level how you define love. It will shape on, on some level how you picture and imagine the future. It will shape on, on, on real levels how you imagine what's possible in life. And, and, and how you conceive of God is maybe the most important thing about you. And yet you get up in a given day and most of us are too distracted to, too distracted to consider that reality. It's not the first thought that we have, right? I want you just to think about what a normal day is in your life right now. You wake up. You begin to get going. There's meals to prepare. There's Zoom calls that are scheduled for that day for many of us. Maybe you get a chance where you try to exercise. You have your family obligations. You're trying to follow the news and what's going on in the financial market or what's going on, you know, politically or what's going on, you know, in the social sort of fabric of our society. You have your financial burdens. You have extended family burdens that you're trying to deal with. Many of are contending with a level of loneliness um, and a level of stress that takes a different quality than we've experienced it. We come to the end of the day and we have our next Netflix queue or whatever it is that we've lined up to watch. And where in that space are you going to consider how do I conceive of God and how is that shaping my actual day? How is that shaping my actual life? I can't, I many times in this pandemic, I have flopped on to my bed, right? Uh, we had to transform all these different nooks and crannies of our small apartment into, into meeting spaces, into, into desks with, you know, with work zones for the kids to do online school and for me to do meetings. So I, I work right next to my bed. And many times I've got up after like a three hour Zoom call and just fallen back up my bed and just let all my weight collapse and just been like, uh, how long can this last, God? I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of trying to connect through this virtual uh, medium. We, we look at it, the trouble of our world or the injustice that we've been experiencing and, uh, and, and maybe even becoming more painfully aware of and, and the pandemic. And we say, how long can this last? Where is the space? Where is the space to, to have a, a, our vision of God reshaped? I get to the end of days that feel like Groundhog Day, that feel like, you know, they're sort of all the same. And Isaiah's experience can feel light years away from that, from that reality. But I want to ask you just to consider this for a moment or two. What if God is longing to give you a vision of God that would shake the foundations of your life? Do you imagine that you might factor into God's planning in that way? Do you, do you imagine that you might be that important to God that God would say, I want to give this person whom I love, whom I, I know the number of hairs on their head, who is made in my image, who is delighted in, who is beloved more than they could possibly fathom. I want to give them a vision of my life, a vision of, of, of my character, a vision of my holiness, a vision of my mercy that would, would shake the foundations of their normal everyday experience. I'm longing to break in. What if we're not even aware of the different realities that make us resistant to or numb to or ignoring or distracted the, the revelation? 
revelation of God, right? I feel like there's a level of humility that comes in our human experience when we say, I'll never know all there is to know about God. And that's absolutely true, right? I have a friend who we, we debate this stuff all the time and he says to name God is to limit God. And I say, yeah, but what if God has told you his name? Then what, right? And you're like, ah, you know, and then you look through the scriptures and you have all these names of God and we're still not scratching the surface. So which is it? Is it transcendence? Is it eminence? Is he way out there somewhere? Is he, is he nearer than my, you know, than my rib cage? Yes. What if God is longing to give you a vision of God that would shake the foundations of your life, that would unravel any false sense of self that you have? that would unravel the, the, the false pictures you've constructed of who you are, that would lead you to a place of such surrender to love that your life would, would actually be something that you would have never asked or imagined because your picture of God begins to be something you would have never imagined. This is the sort of question Isaiah's story raises for us. And I think right at the top is an issue that you know, even my youngest children o- o- over the years have, ha- have raised this question. What about seeing God? What, what, what's the problem with seeing God? Why do we have such trouble perceiving God in this way? So let's look at this for just a moment, the problem with seeing God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This powerful, royal vision of God that Isaiah has, but it's really interesting. When you actually get into the description he gives. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw who? I saw the Lord. And yet everything he describes is not God. He describes uh, a robe of a, a robe uh, filling a temple. He describes the seraphim, which are translated the burning ones. In a sense, the, the, these angelic creatures that seem to be uh, in, in, engulfed in fire and yet singing back and forth to one another about the true nature and character of God. We get other pictures of the throne room of heaven later in the scriptures that seem to indicate this reality is constantly going on. At the sound of whose voices? The seraphim, the burning one's voices, the doorpost and threshold shake. So something about crossing over into the entrance of this space, it, it seems limited. There's smoke filling. So it's not like this crystal clear picture of this is exactly what God is like. Even Isaiah, in describing the time he saw the Lord, describes almost everything else except what it is to see the Lord. So you get the sense again in this encounter that we're being given just as much as the person can handle. To me, this raises a really crucial question that has massive theological implications. And that is, why is God's presence in its most raw and unfiltered form incompatible with us? Why can we not stand it? 
I was trying to pull this into uh, human terms for myself just to get even like the tip of the iceberg glimpse of what this was like. And this is going to start off as a terrible example, but I'm asking you to forgive me. But how many of you guys saw a Bernie meme circling since the inauguration, right? People are putting Bernie and, and his puffy coat and his wool mittens everywhere, uh, you know, on, on, online. And what's so funny about this moment, right, is you have this, uh, even though it was toned down for many years, right? The inauguration is this moment of pomp and circumstance. It's the moment of, of demonstration of military strength and, and our artistic beauty. And, and we have these powerful speeches. And even if you disagree politically with what's going on, with, you know, with, with this party stepping into power, right? You have these people dressed in these beautiful, beautiful outfits in this, 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 this moment. And then you have Bernie, right? Who's dressed like he's going to go chop wood. And, you know, like I, some of my favorite thing, you know, the memes I saw of Bernie, at the inauguration was like, this guy has this on his to-do list, but it's not the only thing. Like after this, he's got to go to Target and the post office. Like that's kind of how he was dressed. And, and what, <laughs> what makes it funny, like I saw one where he was sitting there and it said, this could have been an email. And that cracked me up because I, I think about that with every meeting I'm in uh, or every meeting that I'm leading. I'm like, do people think this just could have been an email? And <clears throat> what's funny about that is Bernie seems to be so out of place in his outward attire and maybe even his his attitude than what than what the circumstances and situation calls for. And we don't have we don't get that many experiences of that. And, and there's there's certainly this American vibe where we can sort of respect that and say like this guy doesn't care about what people expect him to be so he's doing his own thing. But some of us know what that feeling feels like. You've been around someone that you respect so much that you feel a little bit intimidated or you're invited to um you know to an, an event uh, you know, I, I've had a few experiences like this in New York where I was invited to an event and I was like, how on earth did I get invited to this thing? And it's like a friend of a friend and I roll into the place and I feel completely out of my league on some level. And we know a little, the tiniest bit of what that experience is like. And that just is like a, a sliver of what it would be like to, to sense the holiness of God and to experience that as, as a human being. And that's what we get over and over in all these different encounters, right? Whether it's the, the, the mountain shaking or the doorpost and the threshold shaking, there's something about like, I'm exposed here. It's like, I can't look into the sun, right? The radiance of God's presence, the, the light that, that's issuing forth from his, his very character is something that we can't handle. There's an incompatibility of human beings with the full holiness of God. So if that's the case, what should change? Should God dampen down God's holiness so that we, you know, we can experience some degree of, 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 of his nearness? And it seems like God is willing to do that. In a bunch of these stories, that's what it seems like is happening. Or uh, should God change us in such a substantial way that we could handle being near to God and suddenly the holiness of God would not be incompatible with us, which often seems like what's the long range, the long play vision of what God's redemption and renewal is, is that we could stand being in a city where the full unveiled presence of God lights that place, where the full unveiled mercy of God has healed every wound of every nation and there are no more tears, where the full unity-making love of God would bring people together from every tribe, tongue, and nation where you could stand to hear the song of the burning ones, the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are the pictures that we get. But now, right, so many of us have just like a life coach version of God 
Like he's just there sort of off in the distance somewhere patting me on my back. We have lost a sense of God's majesty, God's holiness, and, and, and the reality that it might be incompatible for us to really experience the full revelation of who this God is. I think you get at this in the paradox of the song that's being sung. Right? These holy beings, you know, they're covering their feet, they're, 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 they're covering their face, they're flying, and they're singing this song, right? This vision of God's throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, that part is like the distance, the transcendence, the otherness, the separateness of God. And yet the whole earth is filled with his glory. Nothing on earth is like God. And God fills everything. There's transcendence and there's imminence. I love uh, Alec Motyer, uh, who's, who's a British scholar who has spent most of his life studying the book of Isaiah, uh, has a fantastic commentary on it. I love what he says. Hebrew uses repetition to express superlatives or indicate totality. Only here is the threefold repetition uh, found. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is supremely the truth about God, and His holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be has had to be invented to express it. The question arises, he says just a little bit later, is what is it that makes Him unapproachable? Or what is it that constitutes His distinctiveness? The answer is that it is, it is his total and unique moral majesty. That whatever it is about God's utter perfection, it's something that we can't even fathom. God's utter beauty, God's utter revealed glory, God's utter holy, holy, holiness. Sometimes we sing that word in, in, in worship songs without you know, recognizing this is the very thing that separates us from God, right? That we can be near God and not be enjoying it. Sometimes we have made God so safe in our American church vision of the revelation of God that, that we, we, we sing about his holiness with no sense of awe or reverence or sort of trembling in our inner being that seems to accompany everyone who actually experiences it in the scripture, right? We need to remember God isn't just a life coach. He's not totally controllable. He's not someone who you can count on to never say anything you don't want to hear, right? If that is our God, then we have to admit, right? We have to have the intellectual integrity to admit that our God is just an extension of ourself. And I, I think this encounter that Isaiah have is having is, is saying, don't settle for something so small as your ego being your God. Let's not settle for that sitting on the throne of our lives. The other thing I, I want to mention here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and I want to talk for just a moment about the weight of that glory because the Hebrew word kabod, which uh, means glory, is actually also translated weight. And so when the glory of God is revealed, it shakes the foundations. It shakes the doorposts and the thresholds. It sort of uh, loosens up every everything else. And, and and many of us know what an experience like that is like for the encounter of the presence of God to shake the very foundations of our life, to shake those entrance points moments, those threshold moments of our story. Verse five, 
After Isaiah experiences the holiness of God, the weight of his glory, can't even describe everything that he's seeing, certainly can't get to the point of describing um, this God who's, who's called Adonai, the sovereign, the Lord in this encounter. And he says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. Other translations, I am undone. I am silenced. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what's happened? Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the burning ones, the seraphim, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here, I, here am I, send me. We have this man, Isaiah, who's already a prophet, who's already served under King Uzziah, who's already expected to speak the words of God in his professional life, and yet he comes to the point where he is absolutely silenced, where in the, in the revelation of God's presence, like he's never experienced it before, he's unraveled. Woe is me, I am ruined. And for what? For being a man of unclean lips. To me, this is a detail that I hadn't paid a terrible amount of attention to until studying this passage this time. But think about even the heroes of the faith in the scriptures and the different things they get caught up in, the different things they might have had to say about themselves, that this was another character. Woe to me. I am unraveled. I am undone. I am a man of murderous intent, right? I I killed a man, right? This is Moses' story. I'm a man of adulterous lust, David's story, right? And and I want you to think about your story as we go through this list. Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of murderous intent. I'm a man of adulterous lust. I'm a man of neighbor-trampling greed. I'm a man of swollen pride. I'm a man who despises the poor. I'm a man of prolific hypocrisy. I'm a man who loves swift revenge. I'm a man who is comforted with his loving place of affection that I can get to in my own comfort, or I'm a man who's let a couple of errant words drop from my mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. This seems like, you know, later in the book of James, it says if someone can control their tongue, they've controlled their whole life. And here's Isaiah, the prophet, who already has at some point been called to ministry, to speak the heart of God to the people of God, is saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. It seems honestly like maybe one of the more innocent sins that you could be guilty of. And yet in the presence of the holiness of God, this is the thing that unravels him. Holiness changes our perspective on our sins, on our failures. When it's just compared to my own expectations of myself, this may look really bad. This may look awful. This may make me, may, this may make me tremble in shame. But when I compare it to the majesty and the holiness of God, only then am I even beginning to get a sense of how this unclean lips thing reverberates across my character, reverberates across the marks of my inner being, my soul, reverberates across the spheres of my social relationships, reverberates across the generations of my family. This little thing speaking an errant word from my lips, it's nothing compared to what I could have done. It's a little drop in a pebble and in still water and all the ripples that I don't see of it. But when I come into the presence of the holiness of God, all of a sudden I, I have, I'm unraveled just that un, words have fallen off my lips that were unclean. And I dwell among a people 
of unclean lips, of all the things he could have accused Israel of. Many of them are in that list that I just mentioned. It's that they were people of unclean lips. Right? The holiness of God reshapes our picture of our own sin and our own failure. And that's why the next moment is so absolutely important. If we just have the unraveling, we do not have good news. But we in the American church are so quick to fly past the unraveling that it's almost like it's not there. The holiness of God is something way over there that we have tamed and declawed and is is nothing we need to worry about because God's our friend, our life coach who loves us. And of course God loves us, but if we don't take the full scope of his character into account, it has really profound implications. I'm going to get into what those are in just a minute. But if we have the unraveling without the restoration, this is not a good story. And so one of the burning ones, the seraphim, takes a live coal and comes and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And then I think it's amazing. I don't know how much sensation Isaiah was experiencing in this vision, but if you took a live coal and you touched on my lips, you then wouldn't have to explain to me what you've just done. I would know that you touched my, my mouth with a live coal. And yet the seraphim touches Isaiah's lips with a live coal, and he says, see, this has touched your lips. He's like, yes, Captain Obvious from the throne. Um, I'm imagining that's not what came out of uh, Isaiah's mouth, but the live uh, coal from the altar, why is that important? From the place of the sacrifice. Touches his lips and his guilt is removed. Not just the guilt of the sin he was aware of, but everything else that might have been on that list, everything else that might have been unspoken, everything else that would have been unmentionable in the presence of God. His his sin is taken away and his guilt is atoned for. There's a forgiveness and there's a cleansing. And why? For the sake of union. And this is one, one of the most beautiful pictures of how God's salvation works, how it ultimately gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus. It's at the altar, at the place of the sacrifice, the land that takes away the sin of the world. Why? So we can be forgiven good people? No, it's so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and our nature can become compatible with the revelation of God's presence so we can experience union, so that we can experience embrace, so that we can experience newness, so that we can experience adoption, so that you can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit say in the most affirming, confirming, deeply true way you've ever heard it, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. What a thing to hear the restoration. I want to get into, we don't even really have time, I want to get into, um, you know, what about these animal sacrifices in Israel's history? What is it, with, is God just like wanting these animals to die? Well, what is it that his, his, his wrath would be appeased by the blood of an animal sacrifice? It seems like one of the most primitive, barbaric, you know, like hard to understand realities of the whole story. We get into this in Alpha, and people are like, what is going on here? And, and we don't have time to touch all of it, but I think one of the realities that comes through the story of Torah, Israel's law and prophets, is this reality that there are spiritual laws at work in the universe that come to bear on our human experience. In the same way, there are physical laws that come to bear on our human experience, whether it's, it's gravity or, or, or inertia or, or all, all the you know, weather patterns, and these things impact us in a deep way. And sometimes we don't always understand how this action over here, right, cutting down this grove of trees, affected the ecosystem and the physical laws of, of nature, right? This is one of the things we're wrestling with as 
as humanity right now is how much can we take? How much can we drain from the earth and not have cataclysmic results? And, and it's starting to become a really important question in just the physical laws in our world. But what if there are spiritual laws that are absolutely just as real and to violate this spiritual law sends a real implication in, into, into the world that has to be dealt with? That seems to me to be something near why Israel has these animal sacrifices. If to, like this is something we say at TGC all the time, right? If God is the source of life and whatever sin is, it means to be separated from God. It means to go your own way against God's word, against God's character. So you're separating from the source of life. What comes into that vacuum is death. And so God, instead of just killing the person who's separated from the source of life, says, let's come up with another way that shows you the value, that shows you the intensity, that shows you every time you lie, there's a death of trust. There's a death of relationship. Every time you sleep with your neighbor's wife, it's a death to your community. Every time someone murders someone, it tears at the fabric of the soul of your society. Let me demonstrate that to you in a way that you can comprehend and work with over and over and over again. I think about it similar to the way God sowed even redemption into the four seasons of our of our world, right? You have the death of fall, the resurrection of spring. It's like the gospels in the four seasons. And then you have this reality that, that God, you know, that we're separated from God because of sin. And God gives Israel this animal sacrifice thing to work with to show like, listen, these things that you want to buy, you know, you want to rush past as if they're nothing, especially if you have the power and wealth and means to do so and think it doesn't affect. You can't see how the pebble drops into the water and the ripples go out across your society or across your your soul, let me give you this picture to work with over and over again that shows you this, actually the, the consequence of sin is death. The spiritual law that you violated requires blood be shed. Why is that so? I'm not exactly sure the meaning behind the meaning behind the meaning, but I think God is trying to get his people to interact in a serious way with the reality that sins brings Sin brings death because sin brings separation from God. And so the, the, the atonement now brings reunification. And at the moment that the coal touches Isaiah's lips, it says his sin is atoned for, his guilt is removed, and so he can experience union with God. What a thing! The unraveling and then the restoration. And then there's a commissioning of this guy who was already a prophet. Many of you have already had experiences with God. And yet what a thing if this was the day or this was the week or this was the season that you had such a new revelation of God's presence that you surrendered in a new way and said, this is my whole life laid before you. Here am I. Send me. Send me into uh, my relationship with my spouse. Send me into how, how I'm a parent. Send me into the Zoom calls at my work. Send me into how I imagine success in my life. Send me into the spheres of relationship that I have. Send me into the broken places of my city. Send me in to talk to people who want nothing to do with you, God. Send me into wrestling with my addictions. Send me into the space where I'm giving lavishly and generosity beyond just what makes me feel good, but actually cuts into the quick of my life. Send me into the place where I I'm willing to bear embarrassment for the sake of justice in our world. Send me in, into the places where I'm, I'm lifting up the dignity and beauty of, of all, all my fellow human beings in the city that are made in the image of God. Send me, God, right? Here I am. Here's my whole life exposed before you. Send me. This story has so much in it. Holy, holy, holy. And then who will go for us? Who will go for us, right? Another picture of the Trinity 
in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the message that Isaiah has given is not an easy one. Actually, if you read just a little bit further, the message that he's going to give uh, seems to be one that's going to harden people's hearts. It's not the easiest message to give. We don't even have time to get into it, but I wonder how many of you, this is what God wants to do in your life in this season. To give you a true revelation of God. It's not simply just a projection of your wishes, but is a true revelation of God's character. And I think we should pay attention when we're in transition moments. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year of the pandemic, I saw the Lord. In the year when my job went away, I saw the Lord. In the year that I was forced to move and didn't want to, I saw the Lord. In the year that anxiety erupted in my life and I finally had to face it, I saw the Lord. In the year that I couldn't sleep anymore, I saw the Lord. In the year that I finally faced this addiction, I saw the Lord. Pay attention in transition moments to the way God might want to speak to your life. And then we have this unraveling. And I want to say just a little bit about this as we close. Is the unraveling that takes place in Isaiah's life, it pulls apart this false vision that he had of himself, right? He had to imagine, right, that what was falling off of his lips as a prophet was life-giving words from God. And yet he comes to awareness in God's holiness of the fact that he is a man of unclean lips, I want you to keep for just a second in mind this principle that Jesus says, when we are forgiven much, we love much. Now, some of us, are, 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 we're willing to work within this framework, which is our personal understanding of our life and our expectations for ourselves. This is up here is my best vision for my life. No God included, just my best vision for my life. Then I fall short of that. And maybe I fall short of that in a way where I'm also hearing this collection of voices in my, in my conscious brain or, or coming up from my subconscious. It's a collection of my parents and my teachers and my experience and my friends growing up. And I have this voice and I'm not meeting even my own expectations for my life. And what comes into my life because of that failure is shame. And then somewhere in the journey of my life, I come to realize like, oh, this voice in my mind and heart was a lie. And this, I, w- I shouldn't have given so much weight to this. And I need to picture actually, you know, not living up to my standard in this way it was beautiful because it led me to this experience over here. And you come to terms. Part of maturity is coming to terms with your life and, and what it actually is, not what you imagine it to be. And there's, there's some deep, profound relief in, 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 in coming to be able to live life, right? And you have the work of someone like Brene Brown dealing with what do we do when we have these voices of shame that come over our, our, our minds and hearts and we have, to, we, have to, we have to deal with that, right? But now, imagine like you realize I'm at a place where I can finally forgive myself. A profound thing to do. The Christian story though is saying this actually should be widened so much more basically than you could possibly even fathom. And when you begin to, this is why some people like, this is all I can handle. And God's saying, I want you to know, right, how high my holiness is, is beyond what you could possibly fathom. And yet, how deep my mercy goes to lift you up. And and, and all of a sudden, like, whoever's forgiven much loves much. Whoever's forgiven much loves much. To be forgiven, to be brought to the place where you're made right with the holy God that shakes the mountain, that you're made right, and you haven't diminished his holiness at all to make yourself more comfortable. You've just found out it's astonishingly higher. I had all these things that I thought I had fallen short of, but I realize now I even the words that fall out of my mouth 
mouth are unclean, and yet I am, it's way worse than I possibly could have imagined, and yet I am way more loved than I could even fathom. I am brought into family with this God because he is so much better at redeeming and healing and forgiving and saving than I am at failing my expectations or his expectations. Let's not let the, 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 the levers of our, of our shame relief be just as narrow as our own expectations. Let's go all the way to God's expectations and know that he can lift us up to be part of his family forever. That is where love comes crashing in. A love that you, I think of Corey Tim Boone saying, you've never so touched the ocean of God's love as you forgive your enemies. I would have never gotten to forgiving my enemies and just my expectations of myself. I needed the transcendent God of Israel to also be my imminent friend, speaking his forgiveness and mercy into my life to be able to experience that level of love. to come to full surrender. Here I am, send me. God, come and shape my vision of you. Come and shape my vision of you. Unravel my false self. Break me out of this small place of just my expectations for my life. And let me see what your holiness looks like and my life looks like in light of it. And I'm going to feel unraveled, I know, but I'm not afraid to face that unraveling because I know your mercy and your atonement is enough and that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so I can come all the way open before you and say, here I am, send me. That's what Isaiah's story invites us to. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us such a vision of yourself, that it would shake the foundations of our life, that it would shake the doorposts and thresholds, that we would sense the weight of your glory, that we would not accept some small or false substitute, whether it's our ego or some you know, made-up version of who you are that we've, we've settled for along the way. I pray we would have a true revelation of who you are. I pray we could go through that process of unraveling in order to be restored by you. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. Bring us to the place where we can say before you with all of our hearts, here I am, send me. Send me into my life. Send me into my days. Full of your redemption, full of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.